Looking back in time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland program at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltoch, Sport and Media. Good evening. You're very welcome along to the History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan. Thanks for joining me once again this week as we explore the rich tapestry that is Kilkenny's historical past. Coming up on tonight's show, history enthusiast and the nephew of the famous father Pat Delahunty of Callan, Noel Delahunty, on the Tithe War and the Carrick Shock Affair of 1831. Author John Fitzgerald on his new novel Invaders, which is set in mid-17th century Cromwellian Ireland. Callan and County Kilkenny play huge roles in the telling of that story. Find out why a little bit later on. And part two of our chat with Helen Keeley Dunn, the caretaker owner of Phil Barnes House, the coal miner's thatched cottage once owned by her great uncle, which is now a popular tourist de- destination in Clock Castlecomer. We'll be hearing about how the recent open day at the house went and how the local community got involved. So all of that, plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour. I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I'd love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinners ready sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line on 083-306-9696 or you can email the programme at thehistoryshow at kclr96fm.com Our webpage and podcast for season two of the programme is up and running. You can access it at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show so you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app and this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen. But first this evening, we're chatting to a man originally from the outskirts of Moon Coin, who now resides in Newtown in Waterford City. Noel Delahunty is a retired accountant, history enthusiast and public speaker. This evening at 7.30pm, about a half hour after we go off here, Noel will be giving a talk at Gardine Nagurta in the community hall in Newmarket about the tithe war in County Kilkenny including an examination of the circumstances whereby nobody was convicted in connection with the murder of police at Carrick Shock. The event will be hosted by Guardian and Gartic Historical Society as part of their autumn winter series of history lectures and talks. And the price of admission to the talk is just five euro. So very good value there. And of course, all are welcome. Recently, I spoke to Noel about the Tithe War in Kilkenny, the Carrick Shock murders and the Moon Coin affair. Noel began by outlining for me some of what attendees at this evening's talk can expect. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. The subject of the the talk at Newmarket will be the tide war in County Kilkenny, including an examination of the circumstances whereby nobody was convicted in connection with the murder of the police at Carrick Shock. Now, the proposed format for the evening will be a brief outline regarding informal discussions between the Catholic hierarchy and the government in connection with changes expected to follow after the Act of Union. Then uh, Greg Namana, which was the origin of the Tide War in Ireland, uh, followed by Carrie Shock with emphasis on the trials and acquittals, the Monkhine affair, which is a small 
uh, affair in, in the scheme of things. And then we have Carrigeen dealing with the killings in Carrigeen, the aftermath, the prolonged coroner's inquest and the verdict. And after that, a group discussion. It all sounds very interesting, Noel, particularly given that this is an area of our history that has not been told at all that often. First of all, can you give our listeners a brief background as to what tithes were and the tithe war? Catholics were obliged to pay tithes. It was that's 10% of deemed income, and that's important, deemed income, uh, for the support of the established uh, church, the Protestant clergy. There was no uniformity in levying tithes. For the small holding, almost all produce was for the home consumption. The local rector's agent, the tithe proctor, set the amount due. Even though if that poor widow woman didn't receive anything in monetary ways, everything was used, the amount that she used was deemed the basis on which the tithe was paid. Now, the Catholics had expected that tithes would have been abolished when Catholic emancipation was finally granted in 1829. And the failure to do so, together with a partial crop failures in 1817, 1821 and 1831, and a slump in livestock and grain prices in 1830, provided the background for the organised opposition to tides which began in Kilkenny and rapidly spread throughout Carlow, Leach, Wexford and parts of Tipperary. I should state that, and this was important when um, the landlords came into play, tides had a prior charge on land before rents. So they weren't popular with the, the landlords, which was very important as things um, turned out. And the resistance uh, to tides commenced at Gregnamana in the spring of 1831, after which it is referred to as the Tide War from that on. There, the, uh, the locals achieved their goal uh, without bloodshed. I, I should state that often in Irish lore, a period of opposition to Crown administration is a war and a local skirmish, a battle. But in Circle Kenny, unlike earlier agrarian unrest instigated by societies such as the White Boys, the South Kilkenny farmers did not uh, seek outside assistance. And then we go on to the most significant battle of the Tide War was at Carrick Shock on December the 14th, 1831. Now, the local people were set up by the head school master, William Keane, with James Tracy, John Kennedy and John Ryan in prominent roles. Keane uh, had been in the 1798 rebellion in Wexford before he came to Ballyhale in 1830. He had some military experience and he operated on a need-to-know basis. Various groups, it seems, were advised of what was required of them on the day, but were not privy uh, to the overall objective. This, of course, greatly reduced the impact of a bird singing to the authorities. On the morning of December the 14th, Captain James Gibbons, Regional Chief of Police based at Piltown, alone on horseback and with 37 policemen with the Tide Proctor in, in the middle of the group, set out from Kilmagani Barracks for the purpose of serving Tide notices in the district. Gibbons was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars. It seems that the locals are certainly keen 
had prior notice of uh, their itinerary for the day. Using his knowledge of the terrain and the use of gatherings at strategic crossroads, he guided the police into an ideal ambush site. So on, on that day, the police commander and 11 of his men, together with the Tide Proctor, were killed and three locals lost their lives. For anybody who wants more details on that day, refer to John Gall's Butler or Blood is the name of the, the book. Noel, can you tell us a bit more about the Carrick Shock murders? At Monkhine, 11 months after Carrick Shock, again during the serving of uh, type notices, the intervention of the popular parish priest spared fatalities. Uh, at Carrigeen, where 70-odd force of police and military were present, a young man and a teenage girl were brutally murdered by the police. There the locals got together and with the assistance of the PP saw to it that a proper coroner's inquest was held. This was a prolonged affair. The people were proactive. They took the dead girl to her employer's house and moved the dying young man to a local house. They took away and attended to the wounded. They arranged for a surgeon to examine Joseph and the others wounded that evening. Arranged to have Joseph's dying deposition taken down and witnessed that night. Arranged for the surgeon to prepare autopsies on Catherine and Joseph. They employed the services of a legal counsel. They had 24 men come forward to act as jurors. 12 selected from a hat. Men came forward as witnesses, knowing that they would be subjected to prolonged and severe cross-examination by the Crown and um, legal representatives and the police and military. These men never wavered in their testimony, thereby ensuring that the police were held to account. Now, in general, the South Kilkenny tenant farmers referred to as the peasantry by the establishment, could, for the most part, read and write in Irish and English. At Gregnamana, they outwitted Colonel Harvey with his 600-strong Crown forces. At Carrickshot trials, they were more than a, a match for the best Crown legal representatives. And at Carrigeen and Munkhine, they conducted the coroner's inquest on their own terms bringing in a verdict of willful murder against the police. I'd have to state here that this surely must have been a fuss in British-occupied Ireland. The part played by small tenant farmers with the support of strong farmers in the abolition of tithes has not been given its, its proper prominence in our local and national history that they rightly deserve. It is a sad fact which I feel strongly about. Now, Noel, while it's obviously a very dark subject matter that we've been discussing, there is, I believe, a more light-hearted side of the Carrick Shock affair. At the uh, Spring Assizes in 1832, John Kennedy was the first local man to be charged with the murder of Edward Butler, and he was found not guilty. 
he was immediately then charged with the murder of Captain James Gibbons. Then Kennedy's lawyers stepped in and argued that both cases were identical in regards to time, location and everything else concerning that day and should have been taken together. And the Attorney General had to concede and John Kennedy was a free man. The case is noted for the exchange between Defence Counsel Daniel O'Connell and prosecution witness Peter Harvey. He was a police sergeant who had survived Carrick Shock. Now, I pick a part of, of the exchange, and it's as follows. O'Connell, have you a brother in the police? Harvey, I have. O'Connell, is he the only relation you have in the police? Harvey, I have different relations in the police. O'Connell, tell me, Sergeant, are you fond of mutton? Harvey, I like a good bit of mutton. O'Connell, stolen mutton like stolen kisses is the sweetest. Is that so? No answer. <laughs> Where is your poor uncle who was in the police? He is transported. Was it for good behaviour that he was transported? I cannot say. Are you anything to Harvey the sheep stealer, a brother? Was it in your house that the keys to the cave where stolen mutton was stored was found? Yes, it was. For God's sake, who got you into the police? Mr. Steele, O'Connell. Did not William Steele recommend you for the police in order to get his neighbourhood rid of you? Silence. But there was a further one, John, in in um, in the case of Ryan. Walter Kennedy frustrated, he was a defence witness, frustrated prosecution Green with evasive and betimes witty answers. And again, I give you in part uh, some of this. Do you pay tithes? No. Why do you not pay tithes? Because I don't know why. Upon your road, can you assign any reason why you have not paid tithes? I went to him to settle. Did you settle? I did not. Why? <laughs> he wouldn't settle without money. <laughs> Were you going to settle with him without money? I was. Wasn't it the best and safest way? Did you ever hear that Ryan was charged with this offence? The whole world was charged with it. Did you hear he was charged with it on your oath? Upon my oath, no more than any other one. When did you hear that he was taken? The morning of his arrest. How long was that after the, the transaction at Carrick Shock? I don't know. Was it a week? I don't know. Was it two weeks? I don't know. Was it three weeks? I don't know. Was it four weeks? I don't know. Was it a day? I don't know. Was it an hour? Ha, you want to perjure me? Did you go back to the forge for your mayor? I went back to the forge and got my work done there. You got your more mayor there. Sure as not to leave her behind, I would. Did you give any money to defend the people who are charged with carry shock business? I won't answer that, me man. <laughs> and a big thank you to Noel Delahunty for taking the time to speak to us this evening about the tithe war in Kilkenny 
the Carrickshock murders and the Mooncoin affair. And uh, Noel is, of course, the nephew of the well-known father, Pat Delahunty. A reminder that you still have a bit of time should you be located anywhere close to Newmarket, Newmarket in County Kilkenny. Noel will be giving a talk there this evening, beginning at 7.30pm, about a half hour after we go off air. It will be at Gardine Nagurta in the Community Hall. It's being hosted by Gardine on Gurta Historical Society as part of their Autumn Winter series of history lectures and talks. And the price of admission of the talk is just €5. Euro, and of course, all are welcome. That's it for part one of the programme, but do join me again in part two, where I'll be speaking to the author of a new book, much of which is set in Callan, among many other local locations, during mid-17th century Ireland. I'll talk to you in a couple of minutes. Looking back in time, the history show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltoch, Sports and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. You're very welcome back to the programme. Now we turn our focus to literary history. Invaders is a new novel by author John Fitzgerald, set mainly in the mid-17th century during Oliver Cromwell's reconquest of Ireland. Kilkenny City and County feature prominently in the novel, though Waterford, Dublin, Wexford and other parts of our strife-torn island also figure in this historical drama. Central to the story is the role played by the town of Callan, where locals already know well the tale of heroism that unfolded when Oliver Cromwell arrived at the town walls in 1650. While other towns had run up the white flag, Callan said no to a tyrant whose name still evokes horror and loathing today, more than three and a half centuries after his departure from Ireland. The book officially launched at a busy event in Kyo's pub Callan last weekend. It will be available in Kilkenny bookshops soon, but is available now in paperback and as an e-book from Amazon. To tell us more about the novel and about the history surrounding Cromwellian times locally in the city and county, I spoke to the book's author, John Fitzgerald. I began by asking him to tell me a little bit more about the book. Wednesday nights from six, this is KCLR's History Show. Well, Invaders, it's a novel and it's set in one of the most chaotic and turbulent periods of British and Irish history. And in a nutshell, you see, throughout the 1640s, a civil war raged in Britain between, as people would know this part, between King and Parliament. And parallel to that, uh, the Irish were in high revolt against not just the forces of the Crown, but also the forces of Parliament. So you had the, the King's army and Parliament's army in Ireland fighting the Irish at the same time as the, as the King's army is fighting Parliament's army in Britain. But eventually, towards the end of the 1640s, uh, the Irish made common cause with the Royalists, that's the force of the Crown, against uh, the force of Parliament. And that was fine, but then... Uh, the forces of Parliament won the Civil War and then they weren't too happy with the Irish. Uh, so they decided, they, Parliament dispatched a huge expeditionary force in mid-August uh, to conquer, or to be the more correct term is to, to reconquer Ireland because Ireland had drifted away from domination uh, under the rebel confederacy as, which was based in Kilkenny at the time, the confederation of Kilkenny. So they had a, a double motive for launching this this expeditionary force. They wanted to crush the Irish rebellion, but also to crush the remnants of the royalist opposition to Parliament in Britain. So uh, this this massive force arrived at Ring's End in mid-August and quickly fanned out across the country. And uh, town after town, city after city, fell to Cromwell's force. And there was a, a, a massacre at Drogheda and an even bigger one at Wexford, as we all know. And 
one of the key objectives of the invasion was to capture Kilkenny because Kilkenny was deemed to be, uh, in the words of one Puritan leader, the the centre of the Antichrist and, you know, the, the, the seat of the rebel confederacy. So a big objective was to conquer Kilkenny, uh, to capture Kilkenny. And my story basically centres around these these uh, historical events. Now, I, I tell a story, obviously it's a novel through fictional characters, but I based the story firmly on these events. And... Uh, I have various various characters. Some of them are actually real real life historical characters. One of them, for example, is a man called Captain McGagan, who's uh, a Confederate officer based in County Westmeath, and he's assigned to the defence of a castle in Callan in County Kilkenny. It's a town he hadn't even heard of before the assignment. So he he arrives down here with his wife, he, whom he refers to as his warrior wife, and they are very militaristic and very dedicated to holding the line against the invaders. But the uh, the town governor of Callan, Sir Robert Talbot, just wants to run up the white flag at the first opportunity, and there's tension between the two. And when Cromwell's forces arrive at the town walls, uh, there's, you know, the, the Sir Robert Talbot, the governor, decides to surrender the town, but Captain Gagan holds out, and uh, a breakaway group uh, joins Captain Gagan in defending Callan, and a three-day siege results, and that forms. A uh, central part of the, of the novel, but also I take in other towns and cities throughout the country, and Kilkenny City figures prominently too. At the time, after Callan, of course, Cromwell moved on to Kilkenny, and um, Kilkenny was hit by the plague in the in the run up to the invasion. So, in addition to uh, you know the prospect of of an all out assault by the Cromwellian forces, you, you know you had plague decimating the the town's defences and the local population. So all these true-life historical events form a, a backdrop to, I suppose, a story of heroism and defiance that has parallels, I suppose, in the modern world and maybe Ukraine and elsewhere, but that's, that's uh, for another day. John, what inspired you to write a book set in the Cromwellian age? Well, actually, the, the first I heard of all this was at the age of 10 in primary school when I heard not so much about the the very complex historical historical background to all this, but of the heroism of this 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 brave captain and his wife who who fought to the very last in Callan, like way back in 1650. And it wasn't even during a history class; it was some other I don't know what kind of a class it was. But the teacher he really captivated us that day, and it was at a time when none of us liked school very much. But this particular story fired us all up because we all knew about these these great stories of. Uh, the Three Musketeers and the Man in the Iron Mask and all that stuff. But here was a story of something that happened in our own town. And at the time, I was only at, at the age of 10, I tried to write a story about it, but it didn't, it didn't exactly come to anything and it, it, it wasn't a great piece of creative writing. But then many years later, I decided, it, it, actually during the COVID lockdown, I, to tackle the subject again. And having written a rough draft of it, I, I went and researched uh, the hard historical facts, you know, to go back over that whole period and... And I discovered that it's even historians, even professional historians, even shy away from that period because it's so complex with all the factions. I mean, you had the civil war raging in Britain between Crown and Parliament, and then we're all we're, the Irish are fighting two factions, the King and Parliament, and also fighting among themselves, which is terribly complex, you know. But uh, but I mean, but out of it all, uh, you know, we can things do settle down at the time that when, when Cromwell arrives, because then it's it's the Irish versus the English, although, again, with some English people on, on the Irish side, you know, loyal to the king and all that. And, of course, 
as I was saying, this particular captain who just happened to be assigned to Callan. Now, Callan wasn't the most important town strategically in the whole country, but it's mainly because I happen to live here that I've, I suppose, focused so much on Callan. But Kilkenny is, was indeed a very prominent uh, part of the story, it, you know, being the capital of this this great confederacy. I mean, Kilkenny is a great uh, claim to fame because it was once the de, the de facto capital of Ireland, you know, and I do emphasise that quite a bit in the in the novel, you know. How did you go about learning more about Ireland in Cromwellian times? It must have taken boatloads of research. It is indeed, and you see, uh, and the more the more you research, the more you re- realise uh, how little you know about it. And I, you have to find out basically what kind of uniforms. Then the weaponry was so different from anything we're familiar with now. And even even in researching the weaponry, you're talking about muskets, but they have to be the ones that were used in 1649-50, not from 10 years before, or the ones that appeared later in the 60 or the 17th century because, you, again, you had more advanced weaponry. Just to get all that right, and they, the clothing and the food and the lifestyles, everything, <laughs> all of that like came into it. And, uh, and it, it, But then again, like the, re, the research, is, it's challenging, but it's also quite an, an exciting kind of a project as well, you know. And then I hadn't been assigned this task by anybody else. It was something I took on myself, so therefore you can work at your own pace. You're not, you're not, you're not working to a deadline, you know. So there is that. But, I mean, there's, there's some, some interesting facts emerge when I did the research. For example, that uh, people know probably would, even though people who wouldn't be terribly familiar with that period would, would have heard about the big massacre at Drogheda, from which Cromwell is notorious. But it actually happened on September 11th, uh, 1649, and around 3,000 soldiers and civilians killed. So it was, in a sense, Ireland's 9-11, you know, if you want to look back at it in that way. And it's one of the, the darkest episodes in, in um, British-Irish relations, I suppose, you know. And actually, the royalist commander of the the giant confederate royalist garrison at Drogheda uh, approached Cromwell, and he thought he would be well treated because he, he, he was a, because he was a royalist commander. But Cromwell actually had him beaten to death with his own wooden leg. So that was Cromwell's sense of humour, you know, and the, how he kind of dealt with enemies, even the ones who surrendered, you know, but uh, that's another story. But um, but this particular story, it, it's told by, from multiple viewpoints, including actually a Cromwellian soldier, just to give the other point of view. And in the, in the novel, you know, I'm, I'm, this Cromwellian soldier keeps a diary, and through the diary I'm able to tell the story of the Cromwellian invasion from, from the other point, the enemy's point of view, if you will. And I also have the story told from the point of view of an Augustinian friar, uh, a cynical Kilkenny publican and from the point of view of the captain and his wife and various other characters. So I hope that, you know, this particular fictional account will sort of bring that ear to life maybe for readers and maybe encourage encourage a bit of research into the actual, um, you know, the historical background to all this. The book is set across many locations, of course, but was it always obvious to you that you would pick Callan as a central location in the book's story? Oh, it was indeed, and it was uh, events in Callan that uh, first kind of um, sort of uh, like sparked my interest in in this whole era. And but then I branched out from there and uh, researched all the o- other aspects and what happened elsewhere in Ireland. But then I, all roads led back to Callan again, because well, apart from anything else, Callan was on the road, the road to Kilkenny for the advancing force. So it was it was important in a way. And after Callan was captured. Um, a garrison was left here and it was, it was occupied and you had a, a Cromwellian military governor 
uh, replacing our own one. But it was the fact that it held out for three days when many other towns had, had surrendered, like Featherton, loads of New Ross, a whole string of other towns. They were absolutely petrified after what happened at Drogheda and Wexford, so you can understand why they would surrender to avoid bloodshed. But uh, So Callan resisted and paid a heavy price, and uh, some historians estimate that Callan lay in ruins for about 200 years after the Cromwellian attack, which is a very long time to recover from a military action, but it took quite a long time. And before Cromwell's arrival, Callan was a thriving market town. It had uh, a court of justice, it had a town sovereign and a thriving industries bustling with activity and you know it, it, he did knock the life out of it so of course some people might ask you know would it have been better if we didn't resist if the town hadn't resisted so that question will be asked forever you know uh, it's always the, the question um should we surrender or should we not and it, in a way it was a microcosm of what happened in irish history even in the civil war you had one look one side looking for compromise because you know you could only achieve partial independence from Britain and the other being purist and going for the on the anti-treaty side. And it was a little bit like that in Callan, with the town governor wanting to um, cut his losses and let Cromwell take over because that would save lives. And the other side saying, no, we can't have that. We have no, must have no surrender. We must fight on. And, you know, you admire the heroes, but you wonder sometimes about the um, the people who, who, who look for compromise. You wonder what would have happened if if that side had won the day, you know, that that's another question. You've written that you had a job in immortalising the people of Callan who defended the area at this time, and I quote, almost to the point of suicide. Did you find it difficult to put such events into words? Oh, it was because, I mean, uh, you see, there was a garrison of almost uh, 1,200 uh, soldiers in one particular castle in Callan. And of, the one th- of those 1,200, 1,100 walked away uh, when the town governor, uh, Sir Robert Talbot, uh, ordered a surrender. But it was only 100 soldiers and a sort of a ragtag group of militia of another maybe 200 and local civilians, including women, who who became involved as well. They were the ones who actually fought against this, what really was at the time one of the most powerful armies on the planet. So it was an act of true heroism at the time. It was really David versus Goliath. It was like the Battle of the Alamo all over again, or or like the, the Pass of Thermopylae, where the Spart- 300 Spartans t- stood against the Persian army. It was on that scale, you know. So, uh, certainly, even though it was su- maybe unwise and close to suicidal, it's still worthy of celebration. And actually, there's a plaque there on the surviving wall of the castle that was involved in the last Callan's last stand, Scary's Castle in West Street in, in Callan. Uh, there's a plaque there honouring this brave captain and his, what's referred, she's referred to as his warrior wife, because his wife actually, she led the women of Callan into battle. She was a remarkable woman, and she survived the siege and went on to live to a, a fairly good old age. So her her activities are stranger than fiction, and actually I, I tell her story quite prominently in the book, and she's one of the main characters in the book, you know. Finally, John, where can people find the book? In the coming weeks now, and it, it isn't available in the shops yet, but within the coming weeks, it, should, it ought to be available in Kilkenny bookshops. But even now, it can be, it's available right now from Amazon as both a paperback and an e-book as well, if anybody is into e-books. Uh, so, so you have the choice of, you know, e-book or paperback on Amazon or wait for it to arrive in the shops. Uh, now, I might have a few copies 
apart from that, but I can't guarantee that, but uh, it shouldn't be too difficult to get a copy at any rate. A huge word of thanks to author John Fitzgerald there and a reminder that Invaders will be available in Kilkenny bookshops soon but is available now in paperback and as an ebook from Amazon. Time for another commercial break now but do stay tuned because when we come back I'll be speaking to Helen Keeley Dunn the owner caretaker of Phil Barnes House in Clockcastlecomer for part two of our chat on The Satch Cottage. Talk to you in two. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Talk, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part three of The History Show. Now, last week we heard about the charming thatched cottage located in Clock, just outside of Castlecomer, Phil Barnes House. The cottage is now owned and maintained by Phil's grandniece, Helen Keeley Dunn and her family. And in part two of our chat this week, we're going to talk about the open day held at the house recently and the local community's involvement in the project. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. We decided then that we would. We needed to thank everybody. We were so grateful to people because we couldn't do it on our own. We, I couldn't afford it, and I own the house. The house is in my name. I'm the caretaker, and um, so what we did was Sophie organised everything from Los Angeles. She rang everybody, contacted everybody, emailed everybody, and um, we invited everybody to an open day. And thank you to Sophie because you know she did all that and also to all all my children and to Ambrose who just was amazing he organized musicians he organized a tent and uh, he put on flooring and a toilet from leash hire and we had approximately 500 people come for tea coffee we had people um like a wonderful friend of mine um Carl Rosemary Hambage um from uh Wicklow she made so many different types of cakes, lemon drizzle and all of that. And everybody loved them. And um, we ha- we just had people come from everywhere. Um, and everybody was delighted and we were delighted to have them there. Never known so many people in the house. I believe the people in the house were very quiet people. So it would have been a, a, like a big deal to have that money there. But having said that, um, my grandmother went to uh, she immigrated to America for about 19, 20 years when she was young and um, she had like an Irish wake there before she went and it was known that when people went away from that house or went away from the area they often went to that house and um, had a bit of a Kaylee or whatever before they went to America so it was like we were doing that again and we felt the ancestors there I felt my mother there I felt the people I loved my granny Fee um his sister Kate, who I call Auntie, we, um, I felt we're there because uh, we lay on the settle bed, which was uh, placed in the bedroom, even though it was always in the kitchen. And the reason it was always in the kitchen, it was where the children slept, where the adults slept in the bedroom. And my mother would have slept in the settle bed uh, with straw and, uh, you know, nice and snug with her cousin, Mary Woods from Benacary. Um, and Mary is still alive and Mary remembers this. Unfortunately, Mary was ill during the time that we were um, 
uh, having the open house and she couldn't make it but um, Mary is collecting photographs and we're going to make a book for Mary about the house because Mary's um, Mary's mother Nan was was part of that family as well she was my grandmother's sister so Fee's sister so um, we Mary remembers sleeping in that uh, settle bed. The story about the settle bed is a nice story as well, and I'll just share that with you before we go. And the story of the settle bed is that um, Tom Barn, my great grandfather, the miner, he had in in the little garden that runs down by the river. He next to the house, he um, cut down an ash tree. Now he planted loads of ash trees that we had to cut unfortunately last year because of uh, they were decayed and they were going to fall into the neighbour's house and nobody wanted that or out into the road we didn't want any dangerous things happening to our lovely neighbours in clock so we cut down the ash trees and it was a sad day I videoed it it was a sad day but um, my grandfather got an ash tree brought the ash tree into the kitchen and made the settle bed it has never been outside the door I'm sure there was times, because the house was broken into a, a couple of times, I'm sure there was times that it nearly was going to be taken out of the out of the door and stolen. But it never, it couldn't come out. It never came out. Nobody can get it out. It was made in the house. It has never left the house. And when my great-grandfather, Tom Barron, died, uh, he was waked in that settle bed, just like his wife, my great-grandmother. And they were the last people, I think, to be waked there. And um, after that, then everybody went into Kilkenny and was waked there or in Cody's in Castlecomer. But um, up until that point, you you slept in it and then you were waked in it. And um, I've never slept in it. But Mag and me, my sister Mag and me, who spent her childhood there living in, in Fee's house, we got into the settle bed. And uh, there was a lovely photograph taken of us lying in the settle bed laughing at each other. And coming out of the photograph is this big white mist. And we like to think that that big white mist was the people that we love, the people that um, belong to that house and that loved us unconditionally. I say to everybody, and this is a very important part of the house for me, I say to everybody, uh, for children, you know, you know, growing up and, um, you know, we were wild children. We swam in the river. We, we, you know, Bradley's, is that their powers now, the, the farm opposite us, who were very generous and gave us the field to park in as well, by the way. Uh, but when it was Bradley's, we, we played up there, like we lived nearly in that field. And uh, we um, came back to that little house um, and it was the safest little house on the whole planet. And we ate what they grow. They grew vegetables, he grew so, like he grew stuff that you couldn't get anywhere, but he grew them. And that was brought in. He dug the, the, the garden at night after coming home from Fleming's Fire Clay factory in um, the Swan where he worked. Um, and he came home on his bike uh, after the hooter went in the Swan at four o'clock. And he came home, he went into his garden, he worked, and he brought in the vegetables and uh, auntie and my granny cleaned them and fed us as children. And um, I couldn't have had a better childhood there. Neither could Mag, nor my brother James, or my sister Catherine, or my sister Michelle. The five of us and all my children have wonderful members of, memories of that house.
A big thank you to Helen Keeley Dunn there, the owner-caretaker of Phil Barnes House in Clock. It's time for a break now on the programme. I'll talk to you shortly. The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to the final part of tonight's History Show. Now we'll look ahead to next week's programme and we'll be chatting to County Kilkenny-based filmmaker Kevin Hughes about his latest historical project. We'll also be chatting to Dr William Murphy, who's on the National Decadive Centenaries Committee, reflecting on the last 10 years of commemorations nationally and here locally in Kilkenny. But that's just about it for this evening's show. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks to all of our contributors. A reminder that Noel Delahunty will be giving a talk at Gardine Nagurta at 7.30pm this evening in the Community Hall in Newmarket about the Toys War in County Kilkenny, including an examination of the circumstances whereby nobody was convicted in connection with the murder of police at Carrick Shock. The event will be hosted by, by Gardine and Gurta Historical Society as part of their Autumn Winter series of history lectures and talks. And the price of admission to the talk is just €5, Euro, so very good value there and of course all are welcome also a reminder that Invaders the book we spoke about earlier written by John Fitzgerald will be available in Kilkenny Bookshop soon but is available now in paperback and as an ebook from Amazon but that's all for this evening's programme thanks so much for joining me we'll do it all over again next week just after the 6 o'clock news do stay tuned to KCLR Owen Carey's up next with Fully Loaded but for me John Moynihan have a very good evening and I'll talk to you again next week Good night. The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media.